this article that I read about IUD, it's like everybody just expects that you should have over-the-counter NSAIDs like, oh, you know, take like three Tylenol before you go in. And for like one of the worst pains that you can experience outside of childbirth or breaking mm. your femur. And it's like, that should be enough for you, right? And it's like, well, what if it's not? If a man had to undergo that kind of torturous pain, even though it's brief, why should women be experiencing it at all? Yeah. Like if you don't want to experience that pain, why isn't there pain medication on offer for you. And it yeah. doesn't have to be an opioid since we are in the midst of an opioid crisis, but like something better than fucking ibuprofen over the counter and a hot pad when you get home. I'm like, it is kind of ridiculous that women's pain management is always at the bottom of the pile. It's so true. Yeah. It's really fucking true. Exactly. And like, I didn't think about it when I got my IUD inserted when she's like, this will probably be the worst pain of your life and it'll feel like somebody punching you in the gut and maybe between your rib cage. And I was like, that sounds awful. Uh-huh. Thank you. My gynecologist who was a woman who did the procedure by the way when I got the procedure done this was another thing I didn't like about the guy I went to I had another woman in the room there Mm -hmm. to to make sure that he's not raping you to make sure he's being appropriate but also just because even when I had women gynecologists anytime you do a procedure that's potentially traumatic Mm -hmm. someone should be there to like hold your hand and pet your forehead yeah exactly like my pain was so bad when I had the insertion like I was afraid that I was going to pass out yeah my gynecologist explained it to me as like a reverse birth like they're opening up your cervix to put something in and she's like you've never had kids so this is going to be the widest your cervix has ever been buckle up (laughs) I know it was so bad it's like a stretching sensation if the stretch was fire does that make sense yeah that's exactly the feeling of the cervix opening up but then like the insertion of the thing itself is then like this awful thing behind it's like your whole body your whole like insides are like absolutely not it's like you're turning into marble like solid and swollen but still fleshy and you can feel every single one of your core muscles contracting Contracting against the thing like a snake moving across the floor trying to get that thing out Out of of you all for the delicious knowledge that I won't become pregnant but I also didn't get my period for like four years and that's life-changing because as soon as I got it removed I got my period and I was like how did I live with this dude I haven't had my period in four years and like at first it was terrifying and I definitely took like three pregnancy tests that first year without it but like ever since I'm like freedom no wonder men have conquered the world they haven't been like trapped how equally Mm. good women are Mm. at pretty much everything and we managed to get there Mm -hmm. while having a period I know and I don't believe in the politics of like she'll have her period because we've been able to like manage it for so long if we all found a way to which you don't have to have a period there's no medical need for it it's just one of nature's stupid cruelties the curse of Eve the curse of Eve although I will say for a young man it has to be pretty traumatic and terrifying to become visibly aroused all the time sure I think that would be hard to deal with that'd be hard to deal with here's the thing you don't have that until you're 50 (laughs) that is true for a period and also you have all the power and so if you have a particularly large erection people will still be impressed while they're making fun of you that's true whereas like if you forgot that your period was coming that day and you get that on your pants nobody's impressed by the heaviness of your flow (laughs) or even the delicateness of your flow yeah they're like wow you've been dealing with that for how many years good for you no one no one says says that that. no one says that someone you've never talked to in middle school before comes up behind you whispers in your ear you tie your sweatshirt around your waist call your mom and have to then lie to the school nurse about what's going on so you don't have to wear embarrassing lost and found sweatpants Oh my God, the literal worst. And then hopefully... One of your parents can leave work 
and pick you up. And you did a good enough job of lying to the school nurse. Which you, know you didn't it- <laughs> because she totally knew and she knew you didn't want those sweatpants. And she's like, that's fair. You call your mom. I wish. <laughs> God, what a broken world. <laughs> Let's talk about Christmas. Let's talk about Christmas. <laughs> oh, are you ready? Let's <laughs> <laughs> get the sleigh bells jingling, tingling, tingling, too. Okay, okay, ready? Uh, Hi, I'm Isabeau. I'm Morgan. And this is Romance. A podcast about romance novels. About Christmas. About those sleigh bells ringing. About getting caught in the snow. About a ting, ting, tingling. <laughs> About ice skating in treacherous ponds. Oh my god! I shouldn't make it so obvious that I've forgotten everything about this book. It's about re-recording when you accidentally deleted something you recorded a year ago. We're all human. And that's what Christmas is really all about. But most of all, this is a podcast about romance novels and ourselves. On this week's episode, we are doing a Christmas anthology. A Christmas to Remember, starring Lisa Claypas, Lorraine Heath, Megan Frampton, and Vivian Lorette. I was like, is it pronounced Lorette? But this is a romance novel author's name, so of course it's Lorette. Vivian Lorette. Vivian Lorette. Yeah, a Christmas to Remember, four classic stories together for the holidays. Are they classic stories? Were these all previous? published I literally have no idea and they were all new to me they were all new to me as well a year ago we start at the beginning they also happen in chronological order which I think is really nice sometimes anthologies just skip around the timeline didn't even notice that I thought they were four discrete stories (laughs) they are but like they're also slightly interwoven and they move forward in time from 1833 all the way to like 1888 I thought that was just a way of organizing them (laughs) I mean it is a way of organizing them chronology (laughs) oh boy but the fashions change and so do the hairdos and I like that each story pays specific attention to the mores of the fashion of its particular decade sure it's a historical yeah it's all Christmas based sure is all white ladies all white dudes going to fancy parties or trying to escape fancy parties in fancy houses very fancy houses and they're all Christians uh, do you know what religion I, do you doesn't know what feature my le- bigly here that was my least favorite part about this anthology hmm. is that it so specifically ignored the reason for the season our lord and savior Jesus Christ his birth from the immaculate womb of the virgin Mary you know what I like about how this feels then also historically accurate the Victorians were one of the first people to commercialize Christmas so in a sense it is definitely yeah. in keeping with its time period because they're like oh it's not about <laughs> Jesus it's about car and fur muffs and ice skating. <laughs> it's not about that, baby. I really want to read a Christmas anthology now that is pre-Victorian era so that we can see the real reason for the season once again. Our Lord and Savior, <laughs> Jesus Christ. A baby born unto this world to die a horrible death. 33 years later. Because you touched yourself. <laughs> In the he future. died for all of these people touching themselves in the future. And others. Significantly in the future. Oh, like thousands of years in the future. I want to be very clear, Mike. <laughs> Jesus died that horrible, torturous death on a cross because you are touching yourself. And guess what else, Mike? Your mom knows about it. And so does your grandma, even though she's dead. She's looking down on you from heaven and she's grossed out. Merry Christmas, Mike. <laughs> 
grandma knows what you do alone in your room. She knows why you tried to flush the sock, Mike. I mean, here's the thing. Santa knows, right? He's got a direct link to Jesus. He sees you when you're sleeping. He That's knows mostly when you're Santa's awake. function is to call Jesus and say Mike was masturbating. Bring, 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 Hey, Jesus, it's me, Santa. What's up, pal? Listen. Oh, listening, Santa. Mike was jerking it, and I just wanted to put that on your radar. Does that mean that he's going on the naughty list? Because I died for that sin, Santa. <laughs> All sins are the same. Do you remember The Passion of the Christ? Did you watch that in theaters? I did, and I went on a very awkward date. It was oh, the worst <laughs> thing I ever experienced. I thought I was going to throw up on this awful date. <laughs> I don't know why my parents allowed me to do this. It was horrific. You went on a date to see The Passion of the Christ? It was a movie he really wanted to see, and like, I guess I was like, I liked uh, Braveheart okay. How different could it be? I mean, you know. It's the Braveheart of Jesus. It was the brave. It was the brave heart of Christianity. Uh, I almost threw up. We never went on a date again, ever. Oh, really? <laughs> you didn't want to continue to see each other after that shared experience? He was Lutheran. I was Orthodox. It was never going to work out anyway. You were like, I'm taking this significantly harder than you. <laughs> Yeah, I am, man. <laughs> Holy Week festivities in the Greek Orthodox Church, you nailed an effigy of Jesus to a cross. Fucking Lutherans don't do that. No, they don't. Yeah, we've been doing that shit for thousands of years. Each little kid is given a whack. <laughs> I'm the effigy of Jesus. And then you take through him the down. Wrists or through the hands? Through the wrists. Yeah, because it doesn't make sense. Your fleshy palms could no, not hold your no, weight. No, just rip right through. Ugh. No, the Greeks got it right because arguably they were there, but they weren't <laughs> because it was in Israel and the Greeks weren't there. Jesus was indeed a Jew. You heard it here on Womance, folks. <laughs> the Jews are responsible for the murder of Christ. Oh, God, that's not what I meant. <laughs> Because it was the Romans, but whatever, that gets lost in translation. How did we go so Christmas. far off the rails? <laughs> this is what happens when you sarcastically say the reason for the season. <laughs> this is where we go. I can't wait to read our Easter anthology. Is it just going to be the Amish? Why would it just be the Amish? I guess we could read Christian romance. The Amish are Christians. I know, but like the Amish Christian romances have cornered the market. On Easter shit? Yeah. I don't think I've ever read an Easter romance outside of that. There are Amish Easter romances, though. Sure, it's the bigger holiday. It's the one do that actually matters. Have, do they have sex in these books? No, of course not. Books? Are you kidding? They're sexless. They're chaste. People Amish people have sex. Not on Easter. Where do you think all the other Amish people come from? Immaculate conceptions. I'm sure Amish people have sex on Easter. Technically, it's a it's holiday about fertility. Well, again, that's not the Christian version. But yeah, breaking well, the Well, it fat. is the Christian version because they adapted it. Sure, but like... Why are there rabbits and eggs? Do they not have rabbits and eggs in the Amish Easter? I bet they don't. It seems particularly commercial. It's not commercial. It's just an adaptation of a... Of a Oster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can't wait for that, actually. I'm really excited. We'll do that on Easter. Christmas to remember. How do you want to do this? How do you want to talk about an anthology? I know we've done this exact episode once before, but I don't remember how we did it because it was so long ago. I don't remember how we did it either. I think we should start with the Lisa Claypost since we oh, all. Oh, brother. Oh, brother, where art thou? <laughs> Okay, so this one, it's a novella. It takes place in and around her two theater romances, as if you've listened to our other episodes with our friend Kim, she talks about the theater romances. Andrew Drake is going to get cut out of his will because his dad's a jerk. He's a guy from a theater romance? Mm -hmm. His illegitimate older brother is a big star, a Shakespearean star. He owns a theater. Deflowers of Virgins. His romance is not very good. Neither is this guy's. Zing. They have this in common. These are not Lisa Claypot 
Klaus is strongest, in my opinion. But Andrew Drake is going to get caught out of his will because his dad thinks he's a ne'er-do-well. So then he cooks up this idea that he needs a false courtship with a blue stocking to settle his father's nerves. And he picks his friend Cade's sister, who's 26, wears spectacles, and her name is Caroline. A full one year younger than me. She's so old. She's <laughs> on the shelf. She's you know interesting? gathering dust. I bet in our original recording, I said same age as me. <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> anyway, hijinks ensue, and they accidentally fall in love. Whoopsie. Uh, and then they have to get together by Christmas. And the title of this story is Whoopsie Christmas. That is not the title. Called I Will, which also has ominous. Parenthetical Whoopsie Christmas. <laughs> Whoops. Do you want to talk about the weirdest thing in this book or do you want to talk about the sexiest bit or like anything? Mm-hmm. What How do you it think? deals with Christmas? I think we should go through the discrete plot lines of each story mm-hmm. and then we should rank them from most Christmassiest to mm-hmm. least Christmassiest. Okay. Then we should do our overall weirdest part and okay. our overall sexiest part. Okay. That sounds good. So the Lisa Clay pass ends at Christmas. Yay. The next one in the series, Deck the Halls with Love by Lorraine Heath which starts in Pembroke Manor, Yorkshire, December 1858. So we're full two decades ahead of where we just were, which is important because the brother from the last one, his daughter is the main character in this one. And what's important to know in terms of synopsis for Deck the Halls with Love is that standing alone beside a window a short distance away from the midst of the gaiety, Alistair Wakefield, the Marquess of Chetwin, was slow sipping his scotch. Anyway, Chetwin has a really sad story. His brother died fighting Napoleon. He then felt honor bound to marry his brother's fiance, but she didn't actually want to marry him, but she was too nice to say that she didn't. This is all the backstory that we get in the first two chapters. This is a very backstory important novella, frankly. Do you think it's backstory important or just heavy? Heavy. Exposition heavy. Exposition heavy. And so he threw over his one true love to do right by his brother and then that woman didn't even want him. And then by the time he got around to getting back with his one true love, she was embroiled in an engagement. Mm -hmm. So here we are at a holiday party. It's a house party. So all the guests have to be there for a number of days right before Christmas. And the love of his life is there. And she's with her stupid soon-to-be husband. And he keeps asking her on the dance floor, do you love him? Do you love him? She's like, I'm perfectly happy, Chetwin. Like, blah, blah, blah. This is fine. And he's like, but do you love him? And he's Scottish, so he's got this like sexy brogue and this ginger hair, and he's like a man. And then she's like all in turmoil about it. And then the next day, she goes out into a snowstorm because she is in turmoil. The outdoors reflect her indoors. Very good. Thank you. And he follows her to continue this conversation where he's like, if you can just tell me that you love him and that you're happy, I'll leave you alone forever. And she like can't do it. And she goes ice skating because physical exercise helps calm the storm inside. Mm. And then she almost falls to the ice. He has to rescue her. That He takes her to an abandoned castle on the property and they spend the night together having sex. And then he leaves in the morning so Bye that bitch. they're not discovered. So that he can wash give... Wash his dick. Wash his dick. In the snow. So that he can give her... <laughs> 
for Christmas, the gift of choice, be with me, the one you love, or stay honor bound to this shithead that you are. Be with me, the one you love with my snow clean penis. (laughs) Pure as the driven snow. He did. He drove some snow. Yeah, he did with his dick. And he cleaned it. And then, you know. Oh my God. (laughs) Anyone has cleaned their penis with snow or just touched snow to their dicks? To their penis. Let us know. Let us know. We want to hear about it. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, And then, you know, everything is resolved by Christmas. How it's resolved, who can say? I hope you can. (laughs) I can. She chooses Chatwin because it turns out that her affianced asshole is a gambling blowhard who was only going to use her money to pay (gasps) his gambling debts. He never loved her. He tricked her into becoming his fiance. Chatwin rescues everyone. She gets to marry the man that she loves. And to overcome the scandal of crying off of her first engagement, he is dancing the waltz with her and then stops dancing in the middle of the dance floor on Christmas Eve and then puts both of his meaty Scottish paws on her face and just goes to town and kisses the shit out of her because he says she poops herself. The she best way so to stop a scandal <laughs> is Christmas to create a... the second story <laughs> and that's what carries the Christmas whoopsie theme throughout. The best way to stop a scandal is to create a bigger one. That's what he says to her. The bigger scandal being the fact that she pooped herself. You never know. She was wearing eight petticoats and a crinoline. So that's why she had to immediately move. <laughs> off the reveal. It was the dog Chetwin. I love you so much. I haven't eaten anything. Just <laughs> diuretics and laxatives. Kiss the shit out of her. I'm wearing a corset. It's changed the internal configuration all, of my organs. It all just goes straight through. <laughs> it's a water slide for nutrients, Chatwin. <laughs> Chatwin, I'm probably going to die in childbirth. Hope you love me. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Christmas whoopsie part two. Okay. All right. Third one. The best title of the whole anthology. No groom at the end. It's so good. So good. <laughs> this is by Megan Frampton. First of all, my favorite thing. Each chapter starts off with an obscure word. I also love this. Uh, which is a reference to a parlor game that they play later on in the short story. But we find our beautifully named Sophronia sitting in a pub having a beer before she's sent off to her uncle's poultry farm because her father passed away and someone has to be responsible for this unmarried young woman when she encounters a nobleman who is on his way to his mother's house and he does not want to go there alone because his mom is trying to get him married off and so she's invited all of these eligible wealthy young ladies to the party and he doesn't want to deal with it. He doesn't Mm -mm. want to deal with these preening young ladies and so he offers Sophronia the opportunity to pretend to be his betrothed. Opportunity of a lifetime. And she's like, you know what? This is going to be my last Christmas away from a poultry farm I'm gonna take it guess what they fall in love they fall in love because they're both what? like creative and competitive at games they do like games they do a scavenger hunt mm-hmm. they play this word definition game Sophronia would be very good at Scrabble oh yeah anyways they fall in love their fake romance becomes a real romance oh my god also she's really nice to the mom who turns out to be like as much as a scheming like bitty she also just really loves her son and wants him to like you know yeah just like be happy and of course we have like a nem 
nemesis who's like a, one of those preening title chasers mm-hmm. at the party or maybe just wants to maintain her place in the world. Who knows? Especially since women aren't allowed to vote and have no means to take care of themselves. Seems mm-hmm. like title chasing is, you know, survival. Pretty much it, yeah. God, so many good words in this. It's really true. This is a book that really loves the English language. Or the story. Yeah, the novella. Oh, and she's like very interested in hieroglyphics and Egypt. She's a bright girl. In fact, the reason she has to go live with her uncle is that her father spent too much money on a book collection, I think. Um, And she was very much her father's daughter. I want to read a definition of one word. Queem. What is it? Queem. The first bud of a flower. More generally, the first indication of spring. Behold, the queem of spring. Pleasure satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Chiefly into a person's queem. So as to be satisfactory to a person's liking or satisfaction. To take to queem. To accept. I love that Balderdash is being played with us as readers. It's very interactive. To take to queem is a very long way to say to accept. Take to queem. To consider oneself higher than another. Conscious of one's position in life. Mm. (laughs) Queem. Yeah, so fun. Okay, I'm saying so fun because I'm having to skim through here and come to the Duke's Christmas wish. The Duke's Christmas wish. Oh, I forgot to point out the Christmas whoopsie on the last story. Whoops, there was a groom at the end. (laughs) Whoopsie! The groom was here the whole time. He was hiding under the manger where our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the reason for the season is lying. Imagine. Christmas whoopsie. The Duke's Christmas wish by Vivian Loray is a story about a Duke who's super into innovation and science and he's very particular. He'd probably be super into using Excel for petty bullshit in this day and age. And he meets his exact equal and opposite, a messy bitch. And they fall in love. Is that it? Yeah, in a nutshell. That's pretty much it. Okay, so there are four Christmas stories. Which one was Christmassiest? Which one did you like best? Which one had the sexiest bits? Okay, my favorite was No Groom at the Inn. I love that she started off in a bar. And drinking a beer, no less. Yeah, and I would also say I remember that sex scene and I also remember whenever he like comes to her room and kisses her for the first time Mm. and then I also thought it was really sexy I have never seen a heroine drinking a beer in a bar Mm -hmm. in any of these historicals or like even in the contemporaries it's always like she had one drink and she was totally wasted she's a cheap date yeah and this gal was just having a beer in a bar because it's the thing she normally does and she's waiting for a fucking cart to take her to her uncle's house. It was just very hashtag relatable. Yeah. I understood why they connected in a way that was really clear because you could see them finding their common language, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because language is so key to this book. And I also felt like it was the most festive because it was like a month long Christmas party and they did things like trimming the tree and like baking and like all the festive stuff happened. So no groom at the end is going to be your girl Morgan's number one. I would argue that it's also the most Christmassy for just the thing that you've talked about. I think Deck the Halls with Love is by far the cheese balliest. Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely got the worst title. Definitely has the worst title. But also <laughs> it features the most winter sports and also like winter <laughs> foods. Like they talk about like the breakfast foods of the, yeah. the smells of like cloves yeah. and mulled wine and like cinnamon. So like that one had like a sensorial pleasure for me mm. that I liked a lot. I would definitely say Deck the Halls with Love is my second Christmas yes. It's your number one. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's the no groom at the end by far is the Christmasiest. And your favorite? No, not my favorite. My favorite was Deck the Halls with Love. 
Oh, I know. I'm a cheese. I like can't get away from the cheesecake. I loved you it. Love it. I do. I just I've, the outsides matched her indoors. Yeah, that's exactly. The outdoors matched her indoors. indoors. That's me. I also love snow, and I love that like she's this woman who has to like hide the fact that she's super outdoorsy, and she loves to ride, and she loves to skate, and she loves to run, but she mm-hmm. like curtails herself, and then like she doesn't have to curtail herself for the hero chat win because he already knows and loves those things about her. And I'm like, oh, you get to be your authentic self. And your authentic self loves snow. I'm into it. <laughs> You've almost convinced me that Deck the Halls with Love is, in fact, the Christmassiest. But I would say Deck the Halls with Love is probably my third favorite. That's fine. The reason why Lisa Clay passed, which I will say I think is maybe the most plot driven of the four is most clearly like someone who's been in the game for a long time yeah it's tight she like knows how to weave in all of the various characters in a way that feels both like it had the most amount of tension yeah but probably sneezed it out in her sleep you know like i think she does this all day every day she does going through a weird period in her continues to oh i haven't read anything by her that i really like shots fired friendo i mean no but like i haven't read that much but also (laughs) nothing's really grabbed you from the clay pass no i think that's fine she's you know from her oeuvre but like again she had the weirdest part for me which was so our heroine caroline has fallen in love with andrew and andrew wants to marry her regardless of whether or not his father writes him back in to the will and then his father writes him back in because he has changed he's turned into a better man because of his love for her and then very strangely he immediately stops seeing her after his father's death and is immediately then linked to this terrible person called Juliana. And he's immediately engaged to this other woman. And so then our poor heroine, Caroline, is heartbroken. And her brother is like, oh, what can I do for Christmas? And she's like, I don't want anything for Christmas. I just want to stay home and cry. And he's like, tell me one thing that I can do to make you feel better. And she's like, you can truss up Andrew like a Christmas goose. And he's like, okay, never say I didn't do anything for you. Two days later, he says, get into this empty carriage. Here's a pair of keys. You'll know what to do when you get there. And then she gets to this abandoned cottage on the outskirts of London two days before Christmas and there is the man that she loves trussed up like a goose and handcuffed to a bed. I forgot about this. Yeah. And so like the (sighs) weirdest part for me is where she attempts and I think it would be generous to say seduce because he doesn't want to have sex with her and he is entirely powerless. So like he does love her. It comes out through the course of their conversation that he doesn't want to be with her because he's afraid he like doesn't trust their love he doesn't trust himself he wasn't raised with love so blah 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 big old cinnamon bun feelings but like she takes off all his clothes mounts him takes off all of her clothes and then the sex scene is non-consensual and it's like bad why is it non-consensual because he continues to say i don't want to do this oh yeah and you know he's hard as a rock then she's like ah clearly all evidence to the contrary and he's like i don't want to have sex with you and he's still chained to the bed and like it's supposed to to be funny and sexy but it's like not because he's like almost crying saying that he doesn't want to be with her but then we're supposed to understand that he's lying but like I don't understand that he's lying because it's not told from his perspective and also is this our heroine's like particular kink and that's why he's pretending air quotes to not want to have sex with her no and she's a virgin
virgin. So then like she takes off all her clothes and tries to mount him. But like since she's unaroused, she can't get his penis inside of her. And then she starts crying. Oh, my God. Yes. It's a real train wreck. (laughs) It's such a train wreck. And so then she's crying and she's like, I've lost you. Like nothing good can come of this. And she finally unlocks him from the bed. And then he like swoops her naked form into his naked arms and is like, you know, it's going to be okay. I love you. It's fine. And then explains to her why he can't be with her. And she's like, I'll fix it. And then we can be together. Merry Christmas. And I was like, that's fucking weird. It is. Men get to consent as much as women. Like, I think. Do you think Lisa Claypaws hates the genre? And this is like just a really elaborate critique. I wish it were an elaborate (laughs) critique. You know what I mean? Because like I understood like the way in which that it was being written. Like I was supposed to find this as an audience member funny. It's like one of those times when you're in a movie and everybody laughs but you. And I'm like, but this isn't funny, though, because of all the problems that you're now presenting. Men get to consent, like regardless of whether or not like everyone has to consent. Yeah, and he's so clearly not. You don't just like put your finger in a guy's ass. Exactly. Everybody has to no say matter yes. how much it would expedite the process. <laughs> Got laundry to do. You don't do it you without consent. Exactly. And so it was so weird to read a scene where I began to feel deeply uncomfortable by the actions of the heroine as like she was sexually preying on a helpless man. And I was supposed to yeah. read it for laughs. Yeah. And I was like, this makes me deeply uncomfortable. I don't like it. Please stop. Please stop. He's asking you to stop. That's my weirdest part of this anthology. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously that's going to win the cake for anyone who reads. Well, hopefully anyone who reads the book. Yeah, hopefully. God, Claypaws. Such a weirdo. Such a weirdo. You know, and I like the weird shit and I don't know. I just can't enjoy it when she's doing it. I wonder if it's because she's a contemporary. Like she's still publishing, you know, whereas like I can look at Woody Wiss and is that how I, Woody Weiss? However you want to pronounce it. She belongs to all of us now. <laughs> Oh, so beautiful. Or like Joanna Lindsay, where I'm like, this is bad shit, but it doesn't bother me as much. I think it's because I'm able to be like very clearly like this is a dated idea. This has been disproven. It no longer exists in the world. And I think Lisa Claypass reminds me that it does. I think that's a really good way of critiquing Lisa Claypass. I think the other part that I find even worse is like she is genuinely a deft craft woman. Well, and she's like, just good at it. I mean, she's been doing it so much. Like, I can't be freaked out by that because I'm like, she's done it so much. Of yeah. course, she's got to be good. She's got her Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. Totally. Four, five, eight times over. Yeah. And like, I think that's one of the things where it's like usually when there's a problem in like a contemporary historical or just like a contemporary book where I can like, uh, you're trying to find your legs or like the way in which it's worded is awkward or something. Mm. But like there's literally nothing awkward about this prose. It's literally the thing that's happening. Yeah. And like I find that disconcerting for some reason. It is what it is. No, I think that I think you're exactly right. It's all the more terrifying because it's clearly on purpose. Yeah. I would say another weird part for me was the heroine Ivy in the last story. Yeah. Her perception of feminism. I want to read a scene. This dowager duchess is the aunt or whatever of the hero. Mm-hmm. The dowager duchess tisked. I'm not in full agreement with my nephew on this notion of his. However, he did alter his original title for my sake, which was the matrimonial goods exchange. Therefore, I feel obligated to support him. Yeah, he has like a ye old spreadsheet of all of the women at the party and he's determined to like logically sound out who's going to be his bride. And our heroine, of course, was the least likely, which is really fucked up. (laughs) He's just so organized. I guess that's a really (laughs) shitty way to look at human beings. I mean, yeah, it is. 
That's it. Anyways, ghastly title, Duchess, Lady Cosgrove said under her breath. I concur, the Dowager Duchess answered. His former title made it seem as if marriage were part of a bartering system, which, of course, it has been for centuries. I believe, however, we've risen above that archaic notion. In our modern day, more and more marriages are decided on by matters of mutual regard and fondness, as they should be. I'm sure you would agree, Xenia. Lady Cosgrove was silent for a moment. Ivy imagined that at any moment she would employ another infamous look. Instead, a wistful smile graced her lips. You and I were fortunate, Duchess, Lady Cosgrove said with an uncharacteristic softness. Then looking to Lila, she cleared her throat. Though not all young women can afford romantic notions. Which is true. Yeah, legit. And marriage is for mutual benefit. Yes. To this day. Yes. The thing is, this perception of making the best of a bad system, like the whole point of this short story is to say that that's wrong. Mm -hmm. That love is like unknowable and unnegotiable and Mm -hmm. like... You can't chart the course of love in your yield Excel spreadsheet of ladies. Exactly. And like, which is of course like not to suck all the romance out of the room, but like psychologists say the number one factor determining fondness is proximity. Proximity and chance. Proximity and chance. And like to say... Like to think about love as this like immutable thing, this almost ethereal presence in our world is lovely, but it's really unfair because, you know, for whatever reason, some people are like, I think, psychologically prepared to seek out and find that psychologically, socioeconomically, physically prepared to have that experience of an ethereal thing. But it's really not an ethereal thing. It's something that was always going to happen to them. And I think a lot of people feel cheated and less than even though essentially they're having the same experience it's just they aren't equipped by the circumstances of their lives to mm-hmm. have that particular experience to be swept up in the arms of like a well-muscled Scotsman who is also a duke and is going to solve all their problems even mm. though they never realized how beautiful they were you know what I mean yeah like you kind of know where you stand throughout your life and I don't think your choices should be put on this like scale because of that like you shouldn't be told that like your companionship your relationship with someone is less than because it was something born of a convenience because honestly all of it is born of a convenience Mm -hmm. the convenience of proximity no I agree I think that's like one of the criticisms that romance has a hard time fending off not that it like leads to unrealistic expectations because I think like one of the things that's really great about romance is that like as we read heroes who like do emotional labor Mm -hmm. and like I think that is an expectation that we should have for partners and like as we read about you know heroines who were afraid to speak their mind for whatever reason then like grow in confidence to speak it I think like that is a good expectation but like this thing that you're talking about in terms of like a lightning strike or like the way in which you are lit on fire swept away as you say and that's one of the things about romance novels where it's like I kind of do love the friend's to lovers move where it's like you know one day your perspective just shifts enough where you're like oh I do want to bang you. I I do think there's something about romance novels that I don't think is particularly feminist or interesting is the fact that romance novels are always about beautiful people Mm. falling in love with each other Mm -hmm. which is also kind of just the story of the universe Mm -hmm. and it's because we tend to like self sort. One of the things that I do love about romance novels inside of this vein that you're talking about is like you oftentimes have 
the heroine who doesn't see that she's beautiful and like ew 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 she takes off her glasses and suddenly she's a goddess like I hate that happens all the time all the time Constantly. hate that but I do love that the dudes are always so much more attractive when like in other medias like King of are Queens are they so much more well yeah we don't have the sitcom problem right and I think like that's so nice about romance where it's like if anything it's certainly not the opposite and I don't mean to exaggerate but like there is like at least a slight reversal of that where it's like you can have somebody who at least doesn't feel as pretty as the pretty man who's suddenly in love with her and I like that that like ever so slightly troubles that water I always feel like that's kind of a matter of perspective though because we only like from the hero's perspective the heroine always happens to be like astoundingly beautiful Mm -hmm. and he sees all the things that even if she doesn't consider herself beautiful or if other people aren't impressed with her he sees all the particularities that make her stunningly beautiful and it's not that she's not stunningly beautiful it's just that she doesn't understand it and other people don't get it which isn't really the same thing as saying that she's like average looking or asymmetrical or whatever it's not the same thing no it's not and I think like one of the only times that I've ever read a book where you had a truly unlovely or average looking human is you know Jane Eyre and Mm -hmm. potentially I would say persuasion and like the way in which everyone describes poor Anne (laughs) just the bloom has gone off is the way that she's described and it's like it's such a subtle way of saying that she's plain Mm and like I don't know people are afraid to talk about plain people falling in love in romance novels or like that's not part of the fantasy yeah because I guess no one wants to think of themselves as plain but like how can we how can we yeah how can we all be beautiful and also like how can we talk about something being feminist if it is still putting so much value on your looks and certainly traditional beauty standards yeah exactly traditional beauty standards and like even like if they suggest that someone is like heavy it's like suddenly like oh it's not that she's fat that she's curvaceous I mean I guess I've read romance novels about fat women finding love but I think it's I don't think it counts like it's not like I don't know why you're saying that can you explain that more I think it's still a thing of like I did recently read a short story that we'll talk about later that kind of shrugs off this tradition but I do think like if you're the type of person who's writing a story about a woman and like the only flaw to her is that she doesn't realize she's beautiful and that's actually something that if someone was stunningly beautiful I would want them to realize it because you move through the world differently and there's no way that you don't know that you're stunningly beautiful like that's the thing I mean I hate to break it to people who are like I might be stunningly beautiful I just don't know it like no the world moves differently around you when you're stunningly beautiful you would know it if you were if you like got your makeover scene in clueless the next day you would notice a different world it would be a kinder easier gentler world and this idea of like I'm beautiful but I don't know it is also kind of bolstering this patriarchal sense of power because being beautiful is a kind of power it allows you to move through the world differently in an easier way in most cases and so if a woman is beautiful but doesn't realize she's beautiful her physical appearance is a boon to her heteronormative partner more than it is to herself Mm -hmm. because you have to be aware of a tool in order to use it right totally and so I think like this idea of like one direction she doesn't know she's beautiful is actually oppressive and I think it's like a really boring way of talking about a woman like she thinks she has a problem but she doesn't really have it except it is it's just a different kind 
mind problem. Am I making myself clear? You're making yourself clear, but like the thing that I want to add to this and why it's like, while I agree with you, I'd want to couch some of these terms and like, I think because women have occupied a lesser position in society since time immemoria and the way in which our bodies have been weaponized against us and against each other, there's a way in which I think beautiful people, especially if they had hard adolescence or like an awkward phase, there's a way in which you're right. You notice a difference. Like, man, I notice a difference when I lose 10 pounds, like the Mm -hmm. way in which your body is constantly on. Right. Mm -hmm. And like something that can be commented on. I think like all of that is true. I think like the idea that like you take your glasses off and you don't realize you're the most beautiful woman in the room is stupid. But like one of the things that I think this romance trope maybe is inelegantly or not wrestling with enough is that because women's bodies have been weaponized against each other Mm. and to our own detriment as Mm -hmm. like a way of keeping us in place. Mm -hmm. I think there's a way in which we don't recognize our own beauties. So like when you said he sees all of her particularities and it doesn't matter if anybody else can't see what they add up to because him seeing her particularities makes her beautiful. I think like that's part of the but thing. But that's like, that's also the benefit of being a man. Sure. Like you noticing particularities of a woman that you're attracted to doesn't matter. Like you have the final say on her value. And if you are able to say, ooh, she's got a sensuous mouth even though her nose is small, you know, like that kind of bullshit that comes up in these books, like then you're done. Like you have validated her. Especially if your name comes with a title after it. Like that's the or ultimate Or in romance battle. novels, literally any hero, any hero who finds a woman attractive has the final word on whether or not she's attractive. And through that acknowledgement, validates her existence. That's what happens. Like it's not really about, guess what girls, you might be beautiful too and just not realize it. Like there's some guy out there who has looked at your eyebrows and is just waiting to notice your like earlobes, you know, and the sensuous curve of your cochlear you know what I mean like that's kind of what it I think it's trying to imply but that's not what it's saying at all and I think the fact that you would try to imply something like that is an acknowledgement of the fact that like you need that man to notice the sensuous curve of your cochlear like whatever I can't remember the word for it cartilage in order for you to be a valid human being in the world who can be loved. I think that's an extent too far. And while I understand that's like the furthest extent of that argument, and I think like the argument itself is fair, I don't know that that conclusion is fair for all romance novels all over. I think like part of the problem that you are speaking to here is that romance doesn't do enough to say that like the validation that we receive as people should not come from the outside. Romance doesn't do enough to separate that because the happily ever after is so uniquely yoked to the particularities of physicality, but also to the particularities of personhood. Why is the idea that someone would fall in love with you and want to be with you and would overcome some kind of obstacle so that you two could be married or together? Why is that yoked to physicality? In romance novel? Yeah. Because I think they're so intensely physical. The validation of you as a person first in romance novels often begins with a validation of like one interior quality and then immediately a physical one. And they sort of braid together. Do you think it doesn't start with a physical quality? I think it depends. Like I think when we get the hero's perspective, most of the time, the first thing we're hearing about is a mouth. Sometimes. But like one of the first things that Andrew Drake notices about Caroline is the sparkling wit behind her eyes. He notices her eyes. He's making assumptions about a sparkling wit. 
behind them. He doesn't actually met her or talk to her. It's because of it's the like those guys on fucking Reddit. That she just gave him. It's like those guys on Reddit gone wild who like see a picture is. of a woman's breast and they're like, wow, I can tell you're a really nice person. It's like, no, you can't. That's insane. That happens all the time. Like we as readers know that the heroine has a sparkling wit, but there is actually no way that someone can look at your eyes and know that you have a sparkling wit. I mean, it was coupled with her stinging set down. And then like, his first thought that's is... That's not... That's, the thing is, is like, why can't it just be she has a sparkling wit? And I know that. Why does it have to be tied to her eyes? And also you talk about physicality. It's not sensuous. It's not describing a sensorial experience. It's just seeing someone's features. How is that not sensorial? Because the kind of pleasure you get from seeing someone and thinking that they're beautiful is a highly socialized, regulated experience. Mm -hmm. Whereas like someone gently touching your thigh, that's sensual in a way that is inherent to you and is not so influenced. However, if you like have a physical experience that's repellent, that's normally pleasurable, that's also been socialized. But that actually says something about your character and your backstory. Looking at someone and saying, I like the way your lips look is more about the fact that you've been told these are beautiful lips and these are kissable lips. I mean, you just look at it from historical perspective. That's the other thing. Like these historicals never take into account how physical beauty, what we term traditionally beautiful physical specimens has changed over the centuries. Like no one's talking about some dude's very thin mouth and weak chin. Although those were considered very sexy qualities in a man at one point in history. And so looking at someone and thinking they're beautiful is the most highly mediated sensorial experience to the point where I think it's significantly more psychological than sensorial. And it's not like they say anything groundbreaking. Like it's not like a guy's like, I saw her enormous ears and thought they were great. Or I saw her double chin and I wanted to lick both of them. <laughs> like nothing like that ever happens. They're always acknowledging a traditional by contemporaneous beauty standard. And when they're not, they comment on it. Yeah. They're like in spite of. Or because of. You know, her big nose actually added character to her face and that meant she, she had, had a sense of humor nose. and of course it fucking doesn't of course it doesn't mean she has a sense of humor she's quirky and of course it doesn't mean she's quirky she could be the most boring person on the planet I know lots of women with interesting facial features who are excruciatingly boring I know lots of men who are the same way you know it doesn't actually mean anything so I would say like that's why I don't think of it in the same way as I think of like sexual you know having your toe sucked is not the same thing as like an expression of physical lust or love as looking at someone and thinking they're beautiful. I don't think it's the same, which sure. is why I think a romance novel and the idea of love can exist separate from physicality and maybe should more so. I don't mind describing characters, but the fact that there's so much value placed on the fact that so-and-so is somehow the first person ever to notice that they have a pouty mouth. I think it's a shorthand for saying you're the first person to see me. But that sucks that the first person, like the first person to see you is seeing you based on all of this other shit. Like they're not even really seeing you. They're and seeing everything that they've been told to like about you. Sure. But like those are all like to use a tired term, a meet cute. Right. And like when you're. Why is that a meet cute? Because the first time we get a hero or a heroine's perspective of the physicality and also the whatever, the catalog of features, that's usually the first time that they've met. But a meet cute is a specific set of circumstances. Right. And usually the first time our hero and heroine meet, it is technically 
technically a meet cute. They bump into each other at the bookstore. Like they meet at the but why is groom at the inn? Why can't they just uh, not catalog each other's features? And also, I don't think meeting at a bar is a meet cute. How would you have described that meeting? A meet cute is like if you bump into somebody and you drop your papers or something out of the ordinary happens that she's causes- drinking at a bar before she goes to a poultry farm and he stopped there to look for a wife. Like that's like the definition. That sounds very intentional. A meet cute can't be intentional. It has to be an accident. It is an accident though. Like she, like he didn't know that he, she was going to be cute, there. Not every meeting in a romance is a meet cute. Not every meeting that leads to a romantic relationship is a meet cute. Meeting someone in a bar when you're looking for a wife and then asking her to pretend to be your wife is not a meet cute. It's you achieving the goal you came for. <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was a meet cute. It's not. <laughs> Disagree. But like, yeah, I, I get what you're saying about this paramount pressure on like a physical catalog of features and that how it's like physically then associated to non-physical characteristics. Yeah. And it's seen as a way of adding value to the heroine in her existence and validating her. The fact that someone can see her. But in fact, like she's already always been seen. I guess I'm talking about like a larger issue in the world. Yes. But I think romance should really come off its high horse sometimes about it because they are perpetuating these ideas of what makes a woman beautiful right like Lisa Claypaws is the worst of being like she wasn't beautiful like other women she was very petite oh my god you know know? she didn't have a voluptuous breast yeah exactly or like like someone being like she wasn't petite and beautiful like other women she had full throttle titties like you know what I mean and it's just like it's perpetuating it's the thing that I was saying before though where it's like our bodies have been weaponized against each other yeah that's also true that you've just said she wasn't like other girls she wasn't voluptuous she wasn't like other girls because she was voluptuous that's a way in which we are describing a heroine in particular against a bevy of other women's but bodies but then the idea of like he saw her sparkling wit in her eyes is also a problem because no you haven't actually talked to her you don't actually know her or her like mouth was like what the fuck do they say like <laughs> pouty cupid's bow or something that, well like something that creates a sense of personality and that's not true he's like projecting mm-hmm. and like women are also used as projector screens for men like the fucking manic pixie dream girl is just a huge projector screen and it's perpetuating if you see these people end up happily together instead of someone saying like no you don't actually know me I don't have a sparkling wit go fuck yourself (laughs) you know what I mean why can't they just get to know each other? Or like, why can't it be honest? Why can't it be like, I want to be he here. saw her and he was like, wow, I really like those boobs. I would like to kiss them. Like she saw him and she was like, whoa, he's so tall. That's good enough for me in a Tinder profile. I'll go talk to him and get to know him better. Why does it have to be like a sudden knowing and a sudden validation whenever you see someone and you like get fucking hard for them? It's dumb. It's dumb. It's a perpetuation of a problem. I mean, it's just like the fact that the heroine up until the point that the hero sees her as beautiful is on shaky ground. Like the fact that that has to happen, that someone has to say, you are physically attractive in order for her to have a love story happen. I mean, I think that's kind of the worst. I'm trying to think of romances where she is like astoundingly beautiful. Judging from the covers, they pretty much all are oh, astoundingly they, uh, yeah, beautiful. Oh yeah, they're all gorgeous. It's like, it's yeah, just that's they're not it, like, yeah. I know I'm astoundingly beautiful. I'm trying to think of one with somebody like that. And like listeners, 
listeners, if you know of one immediately where like the woman is confident in her physicality in a way that's like kind of remarkable as in you would remark on it rather than like the insecurity problem that we're talking about here, please send us some reviews. Yeah, I think you're right. The insecurity problem. If this woman is beautiful, Mm -hmm. she should not need to be reassured by the hero Mm -mm. for the first time in her life. Mm -hmm. If this woman is homely, Mm -hmm. she should not need to be reassured that she's beautiful by this hero for the first time in her life. Like she should be a person who exists in the world and understands what's happening. Right. And I think like the problem that you're working on is like the darker edge of this where like romance isn't doing enough to trouble the water. But what I'm trying to say is like the other half is like this is a pretty universal experience where even pretty people have been made to feel uncomfortable in their bodies because the way in which women are always on offer, women are always commented on, women's choices in clothes, makeup, everything is up for public debate always. Yeah. is a way of constantly undermining women. How is romance troubling the waters in that way in a positive fashion? I don't know that it's troubling the waters so much as acknowledging that that is sort of like a truth that women walk around feeling insecure. I don't know if it's an acknowledgement though. I think it's like a tacit support. Like the fact that Lisa Clayposs is like, unlike other women... You know, unlike other sexy gals, the fact that that is constantly coming up, that the yardstick is other women. Yeah, I think that's a real problem. I think that's a, that I think before. that's a d- deepening of the issue. I don't think it's just like an acknowledgement. I think there are times in these books where, especially historicals, where like the bad situation is acknowledged. Like the only way this woman can get ahead in life is if she gets married in a title or because her father is dead or like whatever. She doesn't have like the same capabilities and opportunities. But rarely is a romance novel ever like, no, I think she's great looking we just look different like that never happens it's always a ranking system right and I think that is a real problem but we've talked about this before and like romance landia at least on twitter will bring it up infrequently will be like you know I hate like the trope she's not like other girls because she likes to skateboard or she's not like other girls because she can drive a stick shift it's yeah like, but that's I want to talk about the physical yeah, comparison I, think, I don't think that comes up I don't know that it has come up oh my god YA hero the fake twitter I love account that posted twitter one account. that was like a sarcastic tweet that was like tall girls are whatever short girls are sassy tons of women took it seriously and were like yeah I am sassy I'm short and this validates me and people who are tall were like this is outright hurtful I'm also sassy we're all sassy (laughs) you know like and then the person had to break character no you're not sassy (laughs) like not all of you are sassy and none of it has to do with with your your height height. yeah and then like the poor twitter account had to break character and say this was not this was meant as a satirical (sighs) discussion of a problem yeah that it's in romance landia it's not even acknowledged as a satirical like people don't even see it that way well these books don't mean it in satirical they don't and they don't trouble the waters like you said and they don't acknowledge it i would say i think it's just part and parcel they are you know accepting it as a way of existing yeah i think as a way of measuring and describing yourself and your heroine is to put her up against other women it's a shorthand for description right it's rather than (laughs) describing your heroine in too much detail you say she's not like other girls it's lazy and destructive. Yeah, I'll go ahead and give you that. It's lazy and destructive. And I think it also, I don't know. It's just like, how can we, how can we break out of that? I mean, I know how you can break out of it. You, you can, can stop, stop doing, doing it. it. But like, I just don't think there's a lot of critical thinking happening. I think there's certainly less in the novellas. <laughs> if you're an author who's critically thinking about this stuff, it should appear in all of your work or just not appear. Yeah. I think- and that's the other thing, like how much of a systemic rabble rousing are you doing? If you're like, look at me, breaking a system this woman can read and she loves books 
Like, if you make a big fucking deal about how odd it is and how special and strange your heroin is, are you really fighting a system? Or are you just saying, like, here's an outlier? Like, not to be all, all too there about it, but that just, like, reinforces the web. Because then that just creates another web where you can sell panties that say feminist. Or have cats on them. Yeah, exactly. And be like, this is empowerment. And it's not. It's, it's just not. economic exploitation. Yes. What were we talking about? <laughs> sexiest part (laughs) Merry Christmas Merry Christmas I swear to God stop buying stuff stop buying stuff and stop talking about how people look and stop putting your height on things stop stop can we take a break this Christmas and do what light some candles just like don't buy stuff and just try to go a week without comparing yourself to the other woman in the room I think that is the most helpful thing that all of us can do this holiday season let's just be conscientious of when we're using another human being as a yardstick yep regardless of how you're intending it just maybe don't Mm -hmm. just maybe don't yeah that's the gift that we can give each other this season yeah yeah very much so and also I don't know how to say this but like men women stop attributing personality traits to appearance I think that because there are lots of people who pretend to be interesting Jess from the new girl who are not Jess from the new girl I really like her glasses and her eyelashes they're fake I know they're really beautiful they're beautifully done (laughs) I can never apply fake eyelashes to make them look that way by the end of it I look like I've just been running for my life for 12 hours (laughs) (laughs) my face is coming apart in pieces Yep. I think that's a good place to stop. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. So is this a womance or a nomance? It's a Christmas mance for me. It's a Christmas. It's a Christmas. And that's the title of this series. <laughs> Loosen your stays. Never your principles. Mwah! Mwah! Whoa, indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week. <laughs>